Welcome to the Glop Culture Podcast featuring Jonah Goldberg in Washington, Rob Long in Los Angeles, and me, John Puthoritz, in New York City. Glop is brought to you by Encounter Books and their Broadside series. This week's pick is How Medicaid Fails the Poor by Ovik Roy. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes, but in the meantime, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET, R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T, for 15% off the list price. Well, that, that sounds like uh, Glop brought to you by the letter K. It was, it was very PBS of you, the Chubb Group, Thank insurance you. companies. Thank you um, very much. Uh, I will say also that if you are listening to this and you are a member of Ricochet, we thank you and we are pleased and proud to have you as a fellow member of the fastest growing, most civil, witty conversation on the web between and among uh, contributors and members on the center right. If you are not a member of Ricochet and you're listening to this, and I have to be honest with you, a vast majority of you fit into that category, um, I, I am kind of at a loss. You, 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 we really do need you to join. Uh, we absolutely need you to be a member. Uh, if you enjoy this, it's, not, it's, a, it's a three and a half bucks a week. I mean a month, yeah, a week. Um, I'm sorry, a month. It's the cost of a grande latte at Starbucks. Uh, and you can think of it, if you like, about, uh, as having a cup of coffee with friends, which we hope that's the way you feel when you listen to this podcast. We do need your support. We're getting bigger and we're growing and we're getting more influential and um, uh, we, in order to keep the gas in the tank and the car running uh, and to continue this conversation across the country and across the world, we need you to be a member. So um, I'm trying to be nice about it, but I, I – uh, but, uh, you know, the sheriff's at the door. So join. Was that, was that right? Well, that was, was Marshall. Uh, that door, was yeah. that was that was Rob Long with the uh, with the very very apocalyptic opening to the well, yeah, culture uh, well, podcast. It's 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 not apocalyptic, but it's 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 uh, an urgent need to have members join our little community. Yeah, I mean, don't make Rob Long attempt the nuclear option. <laughs> I think that's exactly. that's that's what he's saying. To, as we tape, it's. Uh, or uh, talk. It's uh, 24 hours, pretty much after uh, after Harry Reid upended um, anywhere between uh, 120 or 60 or 30 years of Senate tradition, and uh, and uh, uh, ended effectively ended the the um, the filibuster, and thus made all uh, presidential nominations except for the Supreme Court. Uh, subject to a simple majority vote in the Senate. And uh, with us, I'm John Podhoritz, Rob Long uh, in California, Jonah Goldberg in Washington. So uh, this, of course, is the big news story of uh, of the last couple of days. And uh, and anybody have anything to say about it? Uh, I want to know, is it, I mean, I, I know it's bad and stuff. Um, did you use the proper term? <laughs> I mean, I know, I know it's bad and stuff, but I mean, I don't. Is it really, really that bad? If, if, if any law that requires senators to stop talking seems to me like a good law, but but I, I know that tactically this is bad. But help me out. I mean, educate me. Well, I, I think uh, the uh, filibuster, the arcana of of the of Senate rules. Um, is very very hard to defend uh, in in present day discourse um, because as I write in a column today in the New York Post, um, all of this really comes out of the fundamentally anti democratic nature of the of the Senate and the way that it was created. You know, the Senate until 1913, the senators were not directly elected except in a couple of states. Um, then the constitution, <laughs> then the constitution changed and. Senators became directly elected. They were not supposed to be direct representatives of the interests of the voters. They were supposed to represent states and, and be the representative of state legislatures in the interest of the states. And the interesting thing about Senate procedure from, from time immemorial is that it was all about enhancing the power of individual senators and in individual states, not the partisan majorities. What we've had here, interestingly enough, is a vote in which senators have voted to restrict their own power, Democrats, as well as Republicans. They are now essentially becoming partisan officials the way, uh, the way they are, the way House members are, uh, beholden to the ideological demands of the majority leader. 
Um, individual senators used to have vastly more power than, than than the politicians who were nominally the managers, the Senate majority leader, right. the whip, the minority leader. Um, and now basically Harry Reid is, is the most powerful man in Washington uh, because he can now effectively get anything through that he wants uh, by using the whip hand over Democratic senators. And they do not have as much authority either to resist him or to push their own agendas. Very rarely in the history okay. of politics do we see people – again, it's fu- fine. Well, you can say uh, it's fine, but they're restricting their own power – for short-term partisan gain, yeah. it's a bizarre moment. And there's also, um, I mean, I, I, John, I think got it pretty much exactly right. But there are a couple other things to say. One is, um, as a as a Burkean and a lover of Animal House, the thing that you can say about the tradition of of the filibuster. It's on your tombstone, it, by the way. Should that be on your tombstone? Do, you you want to have that officially said now? Yes, yeah, right. Here lies a Burkean and fan of Animal House. You guys can just show the the mortuary my tattoo, and I'll just copy it from that. But um, first of all, is that it has a long tradition of existence, um, and as a conservative, um, a tradition of existence is a valuable thing in and of itself. Second of all, I think George Will said it right on a recent episode of a special report, where he says, you know, one of the things that the Senate was designed to do was to measure intensity. Right, the House is supposed to be democratic. Elections every two years, direct, you know, very close to their constituents. The original congressional district only had about thirty thousand people, in it. and um, the the Senate was supposed to take the longer view. And the the filibuster rules, the rules of the of the super requiring a supermajority to get certain things done, was a way to measure the intensity of feelings about something, um, and to register something, you know, that something was so important that you could get over that hurdle. And as, as a conservative and as a libertarian, anything that makes it harder for government to do things, I think, is a good thing. And it absent the context of, you know, a specific crisis or something. And that said, the hypocrisy about the filibuster and the nuclear option and all that is monumental on both sides. Um, you can find quotes from both sides saying the exact opposite. Just wait a couple of years. And, and as a short-term tactical thing, say the next five years, I think this is actually very good news for conservatives. Um, right. That's what, say, because what, what if we get the Senate back? Then we, we could do as we please. Well, exactly. we're no, that's, that's ultimately this is the big this is the big deal. And this is one of the reasons that – so uh, you don't like, want to do stuff like this, is because yeah. fine. You give yourself you give yourself eleven months of freedom, but you don't. You know, Harry Reid and Obama don't know what's going to happen in November twenty fourteen. Now, there's a whole argument that says they did this because they're increasingly pessimistic about holding on to the Senate through twenty fourteen. So what they want to do is ram through as many nominations as they possibly can because they know that if, if why is that crazy? Because if conservatives take over. In November 2014, if the Republicans take over in 2014, um, effectively that's the end of the uh, Obama's ability to get judges uh-huh. and and, uh, and 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 nominations, except for say cabinet secretaries, uh, through. So so there is one argument that that is actually what's going on that they that they want that they're feeling they're feeling unlucky and they're feeling as though things are turning against them, and they needed a to change the the topic this week. Do yeah. something to to uh, cheer up a depressed it. base, and maybe get through what they need to get through as long as they can get through it until until you know uh, everything uh, changes. Isn't it also um, possible that by isn't it also possible by doing that all you do is make every little every little I mean I guess you're gonna get some through just because of just sheer exhaustion, but there are gonna be some things that 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 are now you, you haven't given your. Uh, your vulnerable Democratic senators any cover. So they're going to have to vote for a lot of crackpot judges, just more fodder for November, don't you think? Or am I well, crazy? That's, that, no, I mean, I think that's a, very, that's a very good point. And, you know, they didn't, by the way, three Democratic senators voted against this um, uh, ending, ending of the filibuster. Um, and, uh, you know, what's interesting is that something like 40 to 50 percent of the Senate was not in the Senate in 2005, the last time there was a fight over this very issue. So one of the things that we're seeing here is, and and something like 60, 40% or 50% of Democratic senators 
have never served in the minority because the Democrats have been in the majority in the Senate oh. since 2006. So they don't know that they need to protect their prerogatives for when how, they get in the minority. And how now, awful! How awful will that is that to go from being on top to then the next morning you show up and it's like no you you have to sit in a little. Well, chair. now it's really really going to be awful because it used to be in the Senate if the Senate was close, you know, if it was fifty two forty eight. 5347, something like that, what you do is you might end up with a worse office um, because you might have to move around and get a worse office in the, you know, in, in the building. But your senatorial prerogatives were still present. You were – if you couldn't be in the majority and get through what you wanted, you could use the filibuster and holds and various other tricks uh, to, to work your will. And now what they've essentially done is completely disempowered themselves, Democrats, if they lose in 2014 right. or in 2016. Yeah. Also, completely it's, it's, disempowered you know, it's interesting themselves. To watch. It's interesting to look at John McCain freaking out about this. And I mean, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks John McCain is a crypto-liberal leftist or anything like that. But he's, he's on the moderate side on a lot of issues. But this is the kind of move that is guaranteed to make the moderate, the most moderate and bipartisan senators, the angriest, right? Because those are the guys who are basically playing the long game, like being senators, like reaching across the aisle, and like having a lot of personal power. And by losing that, you're basically, you know, this is something in what is essentially a partisan squabble. Um, that is the surest sign you're going to get the, the squishiest of senators to move rightward when it ever comes to partisan votes because they feel like they've been screwed by the Democrats. That's I mean, great. I just, just think it's – anyway, it's very, it's very interesting. Having said all this, it is in – you know, I mean the, the, these rules, the fact that no one in America understands how the Senate works except for, except for Joe's explanation that it's – part of this is a way of gumming up the works and not making it possible simply for things to change at will because – Politicians want them to change at will, but you know, I mean, they're not—they're not intellectually defensible. I mean, the 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 fact that cloture, which right. is how you end the filibuster, takes I hate that 60, word. I hate votes. that word. But I mean, cloture once took sixty-seven votes. Don't, don't keep saying it. That, that word creeps me out for some reason. Right, the word it cloture exists. It exists to creep you out. It exists to make this incoherent and incomprehensible. Cloture. Cloture. Right? cloture. So I hate it. Right. So, so, you know, I mean, we live in a, we live in a, in a democratic republic and people should, it shouldn't be that the Senate is run through trickery and guile, which it is, you know, then there's this whole thing where, where it used to be that all senators, there was unlimited debate and senators could make unlimited amendments to bills. And then Bob Dole, when he was majority leader, came up uh, with John, a whole trick. John, yes. The sirens are getting louder and closer to you. I, there's nothing I can do. It's are, uh, 7th are, are Avenue coming, and 40th Street. Are they coming for you? I mean, I just yes, yeah, I think they are. They are. They are coming for me, Rob, because Harry Reid now has control of the New York City Police That's Department. Right. There's no cloture for the NYPD. There's no cloture for NYPD. All right, so maybe we should get off this extremely boring uh, subject and uh, and uh, and discuss the day. That America lost its innocence. I'm referring, oh, of course. Yeah. I'm referring, of course, to the day that Oprah Winfrey won the Medal of Freedom. Now, um, oh, no. that's no. She deserves oh, the medal. No. She deserves I, the Medal of Freedom because if anyone has made Americans more free, it's Oprah Winfrey. Well, she's a billionaireess. Well, that's so she she's very free. That, yeah, that's exactly that's for right. sure. Really, but uh, not in certain Swiss handbag stores. Yeah. But you know, anyway, you really need to make. Do you really need to make billionaire feminine when you talk about women? I mean, has sex I, is yes. <laughs> I like um, the phrase billionaires. For some reason, okay. I just I, I like I like the phrase millionaires too. I just I I I feel there I feel are, like it, there, are, there are yes. It's a way I, of honoring I, that. I think there. So I think it's time to remake how to marry uh, a millionaire uh, and call it how to marry a millionaires because I think that would be you know useful uh, uh, useful lessons for you know. Men today who are, of course, as we know, increasingly obsolete, according to Maureen Dowd and Hannah Rosen and other geniuses. But um, today, as we talk, this is, of course, the 50th anniversary 
of the assassination of, 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 of John F. Kennedy, who I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, he was killed uh, by hate. Hate actually uh, stood in the uh, sixth floor of the, um, of the uh, book depository in Dallas and, and shot uh, Kennedy and, now, and John Connolly. Hate did is, it. Hate. Yes, hate, hate, hate of America and hate of democracy and hate of capitalism. I mean, is it? And is anybody really still think? First of all, does anybody still think there was a bunch of people? I mean, it was a conspiracy. But but second of all, isn't it obvious that he was killed by a Cuba loving Castro acolyte commie? I mean, no, it's not. No, I mean, to, to to tens of millions of people, it's not. We had pieces over the last week explaining how it was the culture of hate, meaning racial hate, racial hatred. Though how racial hatred expresses itself in the assassination of a white Irish Catholic from Boston of a in white Dallas. millionaire and his millionaire's wife, yes. And his millionaire's wife, yes. But um but uh, the great the great book on this subject is not one of the 10 billion that was published uh, this week, but rather published 3 years ago, uh, uh James Pearson's Hamlet and the Cultural Revolution, a book in which he says the 60s effectively began with the assassination of Kennedy and the creation of this of this alternate plot line of the assassination in which Kennedy was killed not by a uh, cube, uh, you know, a, uh, someone right. who had defected Tommy. to the Soviet Union, but rather by the atmosphere of right-wing hatred in the United States that somehow um, created a lot of the cultural and social divisions that exploded out in the 1960s and 1970s. Camelot and the Cultural Revolution by Jim Pearson, uh, a, real, a real masterpiece of a book. Oh, it's a fantastic God. book. It's a fantastic book. Strongly, strongly. Uh, and so I, this, this, I, I, if I can date myself, well, if, I don't know if we're allowed to put a time frame on this, but I was listening. Okay, so I was listening to uh, a piece on NPR last night on, um, on Dallas's search for redemption after the assassination. What? And I normally like Wayne Goodwin. Uh, he's the guy, the reporter who did it. He's based in Texas on NPR. And, um, you mean was, he's the guy who talks like this here yeah, he, in Dallas? We are he, the he, ones who did the thing. He talks like he's the host of the, the Motel 6 commercials. Um, right. And um, we'll leave a light on for you. But uh, it was five and a half minutes, which is quite a long time on NPR, right? Not a word, not a word that said anything right. that this climate of hate. The Dallas and there were a lot of Dallas right wingers who were kind of crackpots and kooks and all that kind of stuff. The butchers were strong there. Um, not a word, actually laying out in clear language <laughs> that that none of this had to do with this assassination. None of it. And you know, it, 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 it's very difficult to think of another sort of political mythology that any newspaper or news organization would report on whether it's, you know, we can have the arguments about, about you know, welfare queens or um, right. uh, who knows, right, that they wouldn't go out of their way to say explicitly, this is in fact not true. And this whole piece, which was well done except for the fa- of its fundamental dishonesty, um, does not mention, you know, the closest he gets is he says, um, the feeling in the country was that if the if the Dallas City Fathers didn't actually pull the trigger for Lee Harvey Oswald, um, that they did so figuratively or something like that, nowhere saying you know that Lee Harvey Oswald was not part of this culture or anything mm-hmm. like that. It was so, and you find this all over the place. And, and, and I have a big stuff on this. A lot of it comes from Pearson in my in my book and liberal fascism about this. This was a very studied, spontaneous lie. That a lot of people participated in. Unspontaneous lie. Wait, Unspon- you mean, well, you mean spon- what did it start? Did it start right then? Jackie Kennedy herself, the day after the assassination, said she effectively said she did not want the story to be that, that her husband had been killed by a silly little communist. Right, but that was but, not that was yeah. not what she believed should be the legacy of his assassination. That he had been shot by a silly little communist. If he was shot, what, it wasn't by classy, hate. It wasn't classy enough. What was? What's going on there? Like, well, that's not upscale enough. No, yeah, well, no pretty much. Yeah, that he was the silly little communist, yeah. and and that and that basically, uh, 
you know, however, if if he was shot because of the great American drama that is, you know, civil rights or, you know, or or the fight between right and left inside the United States, that would be grander and 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 greater. Now you yeah. say, Rob, you have to you, go back. You have to go back in time and make uh, JFK really care that much about civil rights. You have to go back in time and make him not a virulent cold warrior. You have to go back in time and make him not incredibly the most belligerent president we've ever had, demonstrably towards the Soviet Union. You have not to go just back that. Not just that. Somebody, that. somebody, somebody who was determined to use uh, you know the American clandestine service. To kill Fidel Castro, I mean, and, and, but yeah. I mean, he, you know, but I mean, there were there were f- what, what four documented assassination attempts against Castro, and of course, the one big, you know, attempt to invade Cuba and over and overthrow Castro. So you know, we know somebody had a very big motive. The other story is that you know Bobby Kennedy was somebody who. Uh, grasped some of this to his bosom because he was desperate not to have it that the mafia killed Kennedy. He was worried that that the that the mafia because he had decided to go hard against uh, the mafia in sixty two and sixty three, and he knew that Kennedy had had a mistress, Judith Exner, who was also at the same time sleeping with mob chieftain Sam Giancana, and he did not want this to get public. So, um, what's Phillips, weird about all, all this? Yeah. What's weird is that is that all this is true. That's what's so weird about the whole. I mean, I was born in '65, so I this has all been black and white history to me. But what's strange about all the whole Kennedy business is that it's all true. All the weirdness and the mistresses and the and uh, and Marilyn Monroe down in Peter Lawford's beach house at the bottom of the you know like it's all true. It's so lurid and crazy. Right, right. but this is actually an interesting aspect of of the Pearson but, argument, which is that, that which is that yeah, this was the end of it. This was the end of that because once it became clear as time went on, just how much Kennedy had been shielded and Kennedy's misbehavior, personal misbehavior and political misbehavior had been shielded from the public by a slavish um, and, and uh, you know, a court press uh, led by Brent Bradley uh, of, the, of the Washington Post. Um, that the, this is part of the reason, along with other things, that, that, that the right began to understand that uh, it could not trust what it was being told about politics from the mainstream media and that, and that one in general could not trust what one was being told by institutional authorities. Right, so are you – so you're uh, suggesting uh, – uh, okay, go ahead. Sorry, Jonah. Yeah, just uh, one point because it sort of ties into that. Uh, when, I, when I said it was a spontaneous lie, you know, there are these moments in politics where all of a sudden everybody seems to be making the same arguments about stuff. And they get on a, the, the bandwagon effect. And so what I was getting at about the spontaneous lie is that virtually all of establishment liberalism in a panic raced to this hate-killed Kennedy thing. I mean uh, if you go back and you read the newspapers at the time and it's full of it, they all just spontaneously went into it. Dan Rather made his career by dishonestly claiming that a school in uh, Dallas, that a bunch of high school cheer- kids – cheered when they got the news that Kennedy was killed. And it was a lie. The local CB, his local editors at CBS refused to let Rather run it. But, because they knew it was not true. But Rather went to the New York offices of CBS and got them on the phone. And, and that was how he got noticed by those guys. And he got to go on CBS's national air by saying that, uh, the, that Dallas was such a hate-filled city that the students cheered when they heard Kenneth, the president had been assassinated and that made it a guy's career but so, you know you can you can see from this how demonic an act in the end this assassination was as i say not only because we've had 50 years of discussing how it happened and who killed him and what was there a conspiracy but you know it 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 does when you think about it it represents a hinge point in history not because kennedy himself was a world historical figure. He may not have been, but because everything that happened after had a lot to do with what happened then. That is to say, would there have been a Civil Rights Act? We don't right. know. 
Would there have been an escalation in Vietnam to 500,000 troops? We don't know. Yeah, we do, don't we? No, I don't think we know. I I don't think he would have pulled – I don't think he was a pacifist who would have pulled out. I don't necessarily think that he – we don't know. There's all sorts of things that we don't know about. We don't know how he would have reacted had he been reelected and there would have been riots and watts. We don't know anything about we don't know how he would have reacted to the crime wave, which began right after the assassination, you know, the historic three-decade crime wave. We don't know what he would have done on economics. We don't know what he would have done on all sorts of things. And the shift, the huge shift of, of American political life in the 1960s all happened after his assassination. And we're haunted by it. Our, our entire polity yeah. Would Medicare have passed? We don't know. Medicare, we're now talking about Obamacare, which is effectively an expansion of Medicare. Medicare came into being in 1965. Kennedy tried and failed to get Medicare through in 1962. Maybe if you do the the, the Oliver Stone thing, who benefits? Maybe he he was a conspiracy of liberals, liberal progressives. In fact, you could make that. We've got to get this conservative out of the way. There, that's what we need. Now, speaking of Medicaid, by the way, uh, this Glock podcast is brought to you by Encounter Books, whose feature title this week is It's Broad from its Broadside series, How Medicaid Fails the Poor by Ovik Roy. Ovik explains how people on Medicaid have far worse health outcomes than those with private insurance and no better outcomes than those with no insurance at all. He explains why this is and how Obamacare doubles down on the broken Medicaid system. Ovik is, of course, one of the best, clearest, most interesting, and most incisive voices on healthcare right now. This is an extraordinarily well-timed book. Uh, remember, what we're reading is that while, while nobody is signing up for Obamacare generally, to the extent that anybody is signing up for anything, they're signing up for Medicare and Medicaid. Medicaid is not a successful program and this is where uh, you know enormous numbers of people are getting shoved in. So go to EncounterBooks.com to get this broadside for a special price for listeners of Ricochet. Enter the code Ricochet, R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T, at checkout for an additional 15% off all titles. And we thank EncounterBooks for sponsoring Glop, just as we thank every single one of you who goes to Ricochet and joins. Because as Rob said, if you don't join, we'll kill your dog. Okay, we won't kill your dog. That was a that was a national lampoon reference. Um, yes. and uh, and I was wrong to make if, it. If so. you don't join if you don't join a city a city of hate will kill your dog. Hate That's right, a city of hate. Hate hate will kill your dog. Hate, will do it. hate. Now now speaking of hate speaking these, of hate speaking of hate, how do you feel about cell phones on planes? Anybody? Cell phones. We heard this week that uh, the F the uh, the uh, Federal Aviation Administration is about to say that it's okay for people to use cell phones on planes. How do we feel? Cell phones. Fine. They, they, first of all, it's always been okay to use cell phones on planes. Anybody? Well, no, but, 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 but I, I, the thing I don't understand about this story, right, is that right now you can't use a cell phone on a plane not because it's just because it's against the rules or whatever. It doesn't work on a plane. I mean, I've tried many times to turn on my cell phone and just goes oh immediately into oh. roaming. Yeah. I know, I know. I don't get it either because I know, I know that the people on on flight ninety three were talking to the ground from the. You know, we're talking. But to they the were at a really crazy air. low altitude. They were. Flying. Oh, were they? Okay, yeah. that that would explain it. So yeah, if you're up above ten thousand feet, I guess you you don't get any signals. So it's although hard. You could, are, are they Skype? talking about putting little transponders on the? Yeah, or they, maybe they're talking about putting little transponders on the planes, right? That allow you to do that. Which you could do that. I, they I, have. They have internet on the fl- on the flight. Of course, they can do that. They have a trend. Yeah. They have a, that. Absolutely. This this is okay. internet. Now, I am now going to speak against the use of cell phones on planes. Why? Because, why? Because people speak too loudly when they talk on cell phones. That's why. Because if you're ever anywhere, if you're on a train or now now on 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 certain you know subways in New York or I believe even on the metro in in D.C. you can you can actually use a cell phone. People. For some reason, when they're talking on cell phones, speak at extraordinarily high decibels, much louder than they speak when they're actually speaking in conversation to someone they're sitting next to. It is very disruptive. And, of course, it's bizarre because you can't successfully eavesdrop 
because at least if two people are talking, you might be able to entertain yourself with an eavesdrop as you listen to both sides of the conversation. I that's it's, not good enough. When you're that's eavesdropping on one person on a cell phone, you end up with the horror show of actually trying to decipher who he's talking to, what's the point, what's going on. Not what, good enough. What the, not good not, enough. Not I good think, enough. Here's the thing. Here's why. You should, libertarians. It's one, it's one more damn rule for the uh, please all that all the rules by the time you get to your seat in an airplane you have been pushed around and ordered around and stood in line and had these enormous TSA agents who are always wearing a uniform about two sizes too small paw through your stuff and separate your shoe all that stuff you get pushed around and you stand in line yeah, we don't need any more rules it's expensive to fly uh, you should be treated like a grown up if you want to talk on the phone you should talk on the phone I don't care if the people are loud. That's fine. That's fine by me. Loud is okay. As long as they're not talking to me, I don't care. Okay. Well, there we go. That's well, so like, uh, here, very moving. Having read, having read exactly nothing about this yet, but I did see the Today Show segment on this, which they thought was vastly more important than the filibuster. Um, uh, but uh, which maybe I mean, if if Bill Frist had done this in two thousand five, they would have. All been tearing their cloth at their, you know, and, and right. caterwauling about the end of democracy. But um, it seems to me that it's probably not going to be that bad or that good because what's going to happen is, is that the airplane, the airlines are going to charge you for it. So most people won't bother, right? I mean, you have to pay for your internet. They're going to have to charge you to, to cell phone call, and if and if that's the case, people will only do it when it's an emergency of some kind, which probably means they won't have long conversations. But maybe not. Now listen. I, I will. I will. I will actively try to get sit near John and have a very loud, one-sided <laughs> phone call uh, uh, talking speci- about very specific personal medical issues. Uh, as long as they're proctological, I'm all for it. They'll be very specific. They'll be very medical. They'll be okay, very okay. proctological. Urological or proctological would be fine. Now It'll, that will be the day you the lose key. your innocence. Here is here is the key that we now. I think we now need to acknowledge that Jonah's masterpiece of an article published a couple of weeks ago on Obamacare schadenfreude, the experience of deep existential glee at just how horribly this bill that we all think is a monstrosity is going, was that I believe its originating source – was the last Glob podcast because that was That's when right. we worked. We, we helped him work it out. First, discuss it. So I think all listeners um, may should should feel themselves blessed to have been among that. You know, the we happy few, we band of brothers to see that piece in nascent form. And of course, the Schadenfreude just grows day by day. It grows yeah, day I mean, by day. Today's today's thriller. Today's thriller is the news. That this guy from uh, from CMS, the uh, the Medicare Services uh, branch, who testified before Great Congress, organization, by the way. Great organization. yes, uh, CMS <laughs> said they're doing, told Congress, they're doing the wonderful work over there. Yes, told Congress uh, that the so-called um, shop without having to buy option on the Obamacare website. You know, which uh, it was disabled because it didn't work. So that that was why when you went to the website, you actually had to register all of your data and information before you could then see what plans you had. And a lot of us have said, "Hey, wait a minute, this is kind of suspicious. Did they did, weren't they sort of doing this so they could get you get their clutches and to get their you know get you into the system before they hit you with the sticker shock, right?" So it turns out he lied. Uh, a memo from the week before he uh, – week before it started, it, he said that it didn't work and in fact uh, that, is not, that is not accurate, that it was disabled for reasons that we don't really know but that it worked fine um, and that that although, wasn't – Although finished. saying something didn't work actually was, had a, had, was plausible. No, it was it was a plausible deniability. So why uh, why do you think they turned it off? They turned it off because of the sticker shock problem. The whole secret here is that we're all uh, we've been talking about for six weeks, 
right, is how the website doesn't work. The website is Obamacare. The entire thing is based on the website. That's why you can't say, oh, well, they fixed the website. Everything's going to be fine because they can't fix the website so easily. And secondly, which I think is even more key, is once they fix the website, if the website had worked from day one, enormous numbers of people were going to discover that their health care premiums were going to go up anywhere between 10 and 45 percent. I see. I thought here's what I thought. You and were that's saying. the next thing. So they fix the yeah. website, and then everybody discovers that their healthcare costs are going up unless they go on to Medicare. I thought unless you were going. Go on to yeah, I thought you were going for the Democratic uh, staffers who were freaking out that they have to pay more. Right, because they're now discovering they have to pay more. Like you know, so um, I think that it never ends. There's going to be a dr- the 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 whole thing of the drip 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 of scandal. This isn't even sca- it is. The, the nature of this mind-bogglingly complex system that isn't working and then what happens when it does work, the notion that, that you know, there's going to be a big shift in which, well, suddenly people are going to decide they like it the way they decided they like right. the prescription drug benefit. There is no evidence whatsoever of this. And, and, uh, and, and so Jonah's schadenfreude is really <laughs> – they will shift into a kind of – Pity as the as as yeah. pity for the hubris, you know. It's like pity watching the, the collapse, you know, where you where you feel the pity and terror that is at the center the center of you know of the theory of Greek tragedy. Do you do you believe that, Jonah? Well, it's funny you mention this because I wrote uh, this week's Goldberg file. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's my weekly faux newsletter that we put out through National Review. All expanding on all this hubris stuff, and I, I, I can't get my head around how it is that Obama was briefed in March by the about the McKinsey memo that things were going badly. Right um, in June, Time Magazine reported that Dennis McDonough, the president's chief of staff, spent was spending two hours a day working on Obamacare implementation, and yet. There is no evidence at any point that Obama took any serious interest in making sure the thing would work, right? I mean, it's, it's right. just five days beforehand, he's still talking about how it's going to go great. And the thing about hubris, I mean, I know the Schadenfreude-Rama piece was sort of a, a uh, gonzo kind of thing, and thank you for the kind words, John, but I was really kind of serious about the hubris thing. You know, hubris is, the, it's not just, that, that you think you're great, it's that you think the rules of reality don't apply to you. <laughs> and Obama really thinks, I mean, if you go, you start, you start collecting anecdotes and stories about it, that, you know, he often tells his staff, don't worry about the politics, I'll handle the politics. He told Mary and Barry, the guy from Arkansas, not the mayor, that, that the 2010 election won't be like 1994 because this time you've got me. And I think that he's yeah. got this, this, not, this notion that everything has to work out for him because he's all that, and he's just so great. And so, like, I, like I loved last week when he said at a rally, "Hey, look, you know, no one's more disappointed about this than me. If I could write, I want to go in and fix it myself, but I don't write code." As if, if Barack Obama just boned up on Fortran and C he could bang that mother out because he's just that good. Yeah, you know, I mean, he has this idea, yeah. this self-aggrandizing right. sense that he is the the crucial messianic figure that everything has to go right for because he is him, and the normal rules of mortals don't apply. And so, I think he heard all this stuff in the Oval Office. I think people said, told him oh, about yeah. these red flags. I agree. And he's he was like the Far Side cartoon. All he heard was blah 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 Obama blah 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 Obama because he just doesn't <laughs> care. Well, it rem- well, he reminds me he's sort of the political Kanye West, right? Kanye West, I mean, just to just to bring it a little bit more contemporary than uh, uh, Fortran and C plus plus. Thank you, Jonah. Um, <laughs> but Kanye West has been going around saying, like, I'm a genius. I am a certified genius. Um, and, and there's just a little bit of that with uh, with uh, with Barack Obama. The idea that he can do anything. He's a transformative figure. Um, you got to get out of his way. Uh, and, and what I love about the let me handle the politics, as if this guy is good at that. Right. Or the, yeah, I think, about, I think, I think to make the point, I think we should be directing everyone to YouTube to search the following. While, W-Y-L-E, E dot coyote, 
Yeah. Super genius. <laughs> Super genius. This yeah. is a cartoon. This is a Warner Brothers cartoon. Eventually, Wile E. Coyote became the became the um, the uh, the enemy of the Roadrunner. But this was his. This is when Wile E. Coyote uh, is a sort of hyper intellectual coyote uh, who is smarter than everybody, and basically uh, his right. his his pride goeth before his hilarious. Fall. Now we only have a couple more minutes because okay. uh, get, because of scheduling. Yeah. Yes. I got I got to jump off soon. But uh, our friend Tevi Troy pointed this out to me this week. Uh, there are these two guys, uh, Peel and whatever. They did a comedy. Key and Peel, right? Yeah. And so uh, apparently one of them, Peel, does a great Obama impersonation. And he they were interviewed on Fresh Air on NPR this week. And hi, I keep on Fresh Air. Terry Gross asked Peel what Obama's re- reaction was to his impersonation or what he said to him when they met. And Obama what, said to what, him. What is Obama's? How did the president react? How did the president react when you, when you finally met at the Oval Office? Was he, was, was he smiling? What was his reaction? And his, what he said was, <laughs> you know, I do a pretty good me too. Ah! Ah! Wow. That, and it's just wow. like. Yeah, the uh, the irony implosion, lack of self awareness thing wow. to actually say like, like that you can't is let clinical. someone else be good at something without wow. saying I'm good at that too, even when it's an impersonation of you. Wow. <laughs> well, you could unpack that. I mean, a shrink would unpack that in so many ways, right? I so so, Mr. President, you feel you're imitating yourself. You're doing yeah. it. It's an it's an inauthentic presentation. Of who you really are, which I think is probably true. He's he's he said as much. And then I would say this is classic narcissism. There's a wonderful moment I, I experienced, and I told a friend of mine who's a shrink this, and she looked at me like, "Oh my god, that's like textbook." I was walking up the street with my dog, with a friend of mine. I was taking to lunch. It was his birthday. We passed one of my neighbors who is an interesting character. And I say to my neighbor, I'm taking this guy to lunch for his birthday. It's his birthday. Now, when you say that to somebody, their almost instant, wrote, almost robotic response is, oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. His response. From Terry Gross. His response was, yes, it's going to be my birthday in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Which is... Fantastic. That's how my, perfect. By the way, that's, that's like class that's, 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 that's in the DSM four. Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's what my three year old says. All he says, he's like, you know, can I have that for my my birthday is tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow right. is my birthday. Maybe Sunday. Am I having my birthday on Sunday? So, so because you're, for a narcissist, every yeah. day is his birthday. Basically, a narcissistic liar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not my son. Oh no, who's three. Yeah, My well, son is still, three. he can he's grow out of it. Fantasy. He, he certainly can. can. He certainly can. So uh, that is, um, that's a com- that's a compelling story. That's a compelling story, Jonah. <laughs> when you, when Jonah. is somebody when is somebody going to do an uh, uh, an authentic uh, um, clinical study of this president? Like what? What? Me- I mean, I actually believe he should be medicated. Um, how do you know he's not? Uh, particularly yeah. now that particularly now that he's quit cigarettes, it's no wonder that he's you know so he supposedly has quit cigarettes. If he hasn't quit cigarettes, then he's a liar six ways from Sunday. But um, hey, listen, Jonah, I gather you got to run, right? I have to run, guys. It's always a pleasure. Uh, let me know if traffic for this podcast drops off massively at the fifty minute mark as after I depart. That would be That's awesome. Really- that would well, be. We're, we're just going to make you know fun that. of you. We're just going to make fun of you for the rest of the time. So I think that's fine. That's fine. If, if if you can find some equivalent of me turning women lesbian, go for it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so Rob, see you uh, guys. See, see you, Jonah. I mean, the giggle Rob, might do it. By the way, Jonah, yeah. just so you know. Rob, so if we move off this uh, whole narcissism subject to to your to your actual uh, profession, yeah, oh, um, good, and an interesting good. question regarding your profession is the meltdown, <clears throat> the meltdown of the uh, of the new form that was supposed to take over and completely revolutionize the situation television situation comedy, which was the the you know started by the Office. Um, the mockumentary form in which you know all, car- all each episode is basically a documentary uh, about the characters, and uh, that right, started right. with the office in in Britain, brought to the United States, and then um, perfected, right. in my view, by Modern Family on on ABC. 
Um, and we were told at the time, this is it. They're, they're, you're never going to make a conventional sitcom anymore. And basically they're dead as I understand it, right? Well, 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 well. It's now close to – it's now – it's it's lost. The last show that really is doing it, aside from Modern Family, is Parks and Recreation, which – well, you never know. I mean, look, I, I, just one more form. It was overdone. It'll come back. Uh, multi-cam- multi-camera comedy, you know, the traditional sitcom uh, form is is starting to come back itself. So I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the problem with everything in, in the business is that it, 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 it takes an idea and then runs so far with it and makes everything that thing that the audiences just get bored and tired and, and they don't think it's new anymore. I mean – the the uh, the 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 office was really just uh, they just did what Spinal Tap had done. Um, right. Spinal Tap kind of made it, um, you know, formalized the form, I guess would say. But that, that but that that Spinal Tap itself had an origin in the original and one, one way of looking at it, the original Modern Family, which was a movie, an Albert Brooks movie written by Harry Shearer, who's a good friend of mine, and it's been right. a real Shearer life podcast called Real called Life, real which life. has some very very funny moments in it. It's kind of a, yeah. a it's a big sprawling movie. But it really, I mean, real life is, and real life itself was a parody of the move of the that Loud Family documentary and that American was on PBS, family. American right. Family. So, I mean, everything kind of has its origin in something else. Uh, the, the Office kind of worked because it was funny. I always said that was that was the key to the Office. That was what made the Office. That was the secret sauce was that it was funny. And if you're funny, um, people laugh and they enjoy it. And, and and that's that's pretty much all I know about uh, television. Right. If you're doing television comedy, right. the, tr- the the goal is to be funny in some way, and then people will enjoy it because laughter uh, cre- uh, creates kind of enzymes and hormones and endorphins and whatever in your brain, and you think, oh, I want more of that. That was that was good. Um, and 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 an analysis beyond that tends to be um, uh, pointless and uh, right. irrelevant. But but yeah, but it is. I mean, I I think it is going to be given a rest for a while. First of all, it's so easy, right? It is uh-huh. so easy. Yeah, you, just as a matter of craft, you, when you want a character to express something or feel something, he just says it to the camera. Right. I mean, we would spend hours trying to figure out an organic way to get a piece of backstory out, <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, what's the best way to introduce this character?" No, they just you look at the camera and tell people. That's what to me it was like you could do this and get home. You could get home at four o'clock every afternoon. Fabulous. So, um, is that enough? I'm, was that, I talked about show business too much? No, no, no. It's, I, I think the problem, I think the interesting thing is that while all this was going on, and you know, bloggers at you know, New York Times and everybody writes about, oh, this new form, the mockumentary, blah, blah, blah. As the whole time is going on, it's still the case. That CBS, with these extremely conventionally structured sitcoms by Chuck Lorre, particularly Two and a Half Men and The Big Bang Theory, is eating everybody's lunch for for you know for now for twelve or thirteen years. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, and they're and they're the classic old form. They're not serialized. You can come in and dash at. You can watch one. You don't have to watch the next one to know what happens on the third exactly. one. Exactly. Um, I had the interesting. I had the interesting experience. Not about sitcoms, but. So I've been watching, for the most part, I've been watching this this crazy show, Scandal, on ABC. This show about, you know, uh, Washington Fixer that 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 the Shonda Rhimes, the creator, decided after the first sort of six or eight episodes to go wildly melodramatic, and the president kills people, and there's a there's a secret intelligence agency that's running everything, and and people get killed and raped, and you know, every ten minutes there's a new climax. And so I watched the one a week ago, and then I didn't watch the one that aired last night as we're, as we're talking about this. And I went this morning to read the recap online, and I didn't understand the recap because the show <laughs> – the show's – It's too bizarre. It's now so ornate and complicated, and there are so many characters that I actually having though I know what's going on, I didn't know I didn't understand who was talking to whom or what was happening because there was so much plot last night that that right. I'm already lost. So that's, that's the how other I feel when I read the newspaper, of course. But that's that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's right. So I mean that's the other weird thing that's happening is this sort of this move into this hyper right, right. melodrama. Um that that now makes these shows you know all but incomprehensible. And again, CBS with these very conventional sure. shows like NCIS, 
continues to do double the ratings of everybody else. Yeah, I mean, nobody writes about it. Nobody wants to summarize no, it's not, it. It's, it's not cool. It's not hip. Yeah, no, but, and nobody, the reality nobody is – For some reason, nobody tweets about it, nothing like no. that. It's just that 13 or 14 or 15 million people a week happily wow. t- tune yeah. in and they yeah. watch the reruns and they make a billion dollars on selling yeah. it into syndication. It's like, it's like what is this? Like, uh, there's a great moment in the, in the movie uh, Barton Fink. Um, which is not a great movie, but has a couple great moments when uh, Tony Shalhoub plays a studio chief and uh, Barton Fink, played by John Turturro, is having trouble writing a script. And, uh, and uh, Tony Shalhoub goes, hey, 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 it's a wrestling picture. What do you want, a road map? And I always <laughs> feel that way when I'm like, it's a cop show. Put a cop show on TV. People like it. They got right. shows. The cops go and they solve the thing and the guy, the dead body, and then it turns out it's the other guy. They, they like that. People like it. It's a cop show. Just do a good one. You know, same thing with the comedy. It's like people would go over and over again about, oh, the, the form of the sitcom is dead because it's so old. And then, no, just do a funny one. Right. Try putting a funny one on. Now, I want to complain. I, I want to complain about something else too. Not, not in the sitcom form, but uh, in the motion picture form. Uh, I was thinking about this because there's a, there's a new, Alexander Payne movie called Nebraska, black and white, and it's a son and his father, and and it's the fifth or sixth straight Alexander Payne movie in which characters get in a car and go on the road. And I've now decided that if I never see another movie in which the characters get in a car and they go on the road and they pass the world's biggest ball of twine and and Tootsie's Diner. And they have a moment. And they have a moment somewhere. Yeah, I, it's too soon. That's that'd be too soon. If you never do it, it'd be too soon. Right? Okay. Yeah. So that's one thing that I don't want to see. And the other thing, in preparation for the arrival of the Meryl Streep movie of the year, August Osage County, based on a play that won the Pulitzer Prize, is the family that gets together for oh, a holiday meal, yeah, at yeah. which there are all kinds of shocking and startling revelations. Mm. He's not I your never. brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I mean, here's the thing: is that August Osage County is probably a really good version of that. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's like you know, like how do you get them all in the room? Well, it's Thanksgiving dinner. Okay, all right, that's done. And y'all, yeah, everybody knows what Thanksgiving dinner is. Everybody knows that someone's. He's not your brother. I mean, they know that's going to happen. <laughs> so what? My feeling is like, if you're going to do a road picture, it has to be as good or better than Midnight Run. Uh, yeah, and if it's not, better than that. if it's not, and re- rethink it, but or or just do a good one, just a good one. I mean, that's that's the the problem with all this stuff is when you when you if if you I mean, and maybe it goes back to what Joan was saying about humility. If you understand that you're doing a road picture, then and you and you and you and you internalize that understanding, right? You really do understand it. You understand that this is a road picture that everyone's done one. You're not really brilliant for, uh, but that's okay. You just have to – it has to be really great. If you go and you approach it with that attitude, I think it can work. It's the same thing with the Thanksgiving, you know, everyone gathering at the homestead. Well, this may be Ma- Meemaw's last Thanksgiving or whatever it is, you know. Uh, uh, um, I still think the best road movie you can call you can say Midnight Run, which I love, and it's always interesting to me because Midnight Run came out either the same year or just after Rain Man, yeah. which fundamentally has the same plot. Yes. And it turns out, of course, that Rain Man and Midnight Run had the same director for two years, and he was fired off Rain Man, and he made Midnight Run instead, which is arguably a much better movie than Rain Man. But I still think you can't beat the sure thing for a road movie. That is my idea of the ideal road movie is John Cusack and Daphne Zuniga in the sure thing. That, still- that, that is an incorrect opinion. It is, in fact, Midnight Run. So I will expect you to uh, it's adjust arguable. that. It's arguable. I say it's I say I say no, your no. your your contention is arguable. No, um no. and no. Midnight Run there is no there is no greater there are few greater comic performances than Charles Trouble. Grodin's in Midnight Run and there is there is there is few actors have had as great a scene in a movie and I, this is someone of whom I'm ordinarily not a fan as Robert De Niro visiting his daughter. Yeah. In yeah. Midnight Run, that one scene where he where it's he, really powerful runs into is is dazzling, and I'm not a big De Niro fan. But no, no, it's it's a great it's a great movie. It's a great right. so so to say that there's another road picture that is uh, uh, better is incorrect. That is an incorrect opinion. 
Well, that 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 you you may you may hold that opinion, and I I think this is no 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 no. You, no, you no. are a rhino, and there's, a, there's I, right I, and there's wrong, sorry, and that's wrong. But I don't I don't I don't need to take direction from the surrender caucus on, <laughs> on this on this matter. Um, I think we should we speaking should of conclude though. Speaking of surrender, I think we should conclude with your picks and my picks as we are approaching Thanksgiving and Christmas of. The holiday movies that people should see, maybe conceivably ones that people may know less about uh, than, than well, others. Well, you're probably we better at that them. than I am. I would, I would only say that I hear – and I, did, I missed the screening um, of the Vince Vaughn picture, Delivery Man. But I hear that it's really sweet. It's a very, very sweet movie and, um, and it's got a lot of great stuff in it. And I, and I, 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 I was invited – I couldn't go to the screening. I'm just, just dropping that so that you know how important I am. Uh, and I, and I ha- so I have not seen it. It opens today. Uh, or yesterday? No, I think it opens today. Um, and uh, and I hear it's a very very sweet picture, and his his performance is really good. You know, he's a great actor. So um, there, there it's is a different, a different a different texture from him, I think, as they say. Yeah, and there and there is in that movie the guy who is now bidding fair to be the great comic supporting actor of the last couple of years, Chris uh, Pratt, who uh, was in Five Year Engagement, and he's on Parks and Recreation, and he. He is he is a sort of miraculously amusing, um, uh, married to Anna Faris, who I think he's much funnier than. But um, uh, the movie that's my, uh, my left the, shoe. But <laughs> the movie that dazzled me uh, in the last couple of weeks, much to my surprise, is All Is Lost. That is um, the this uh, pretty remarkable one man movie in which Robert Redford plays. Uh, a guy on a sailboat and a disaster happens to him at sea. It's fundamentally the same movie as Gravity mm-hmm. in some ways, only it's much more radically streamlined because it's about a guy on a 17-foot boat by himself in the Indian Ocean. And is the and- disaster is the disaster that he didn't wear sunblock? Because he does not look good. <laughs> but he does not look good, but it is a movie about – an extremely skilled and competent and proficient person trying to save his life when something crazy and unexpected happens. Oh, it's the Barack Obama story. uh, You know, I think that's very well put. And then perhaps we should take that as our key (laughs) to wrap this up because we have, we have now come full circle but you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad that we talked a little bit about movies and stuff like that because that is what we, you know, that kind of is the gestalt of the of the podcast we're trying to do a little bit more pop, a little bit more cultural pop culture that stuff. I mean, we've been we've been it's been impossible not to talk about the uh, the, the the disaster picture that is Obamacare, the Gili, the uh, <laughs> when time ran out, Ishtar, Ishtar, Howard the Duck, Howard the Duck, oh yeah, of, of Obamacare. It's impossible not to talk about that. But uh, it's kind of nice to be able to talk a little bit about. Movies and TV. I would like to say that I am so insane that I can tell you the name of the actor who did the voice of Howard the Duck. Who? That is how crazy I am. His name That's is pretty- Chip Zian. Chip Zion. Chip Zian, and uh, and he uh, not only that, but I saw him. Uh, off Broadway in a musical called March of the Falsettos in 1980. So sure. just to give you a sense of how deranged I am, that I even know the name of the person. I have worked. I have worked with Chip Zion. Chip Zion's a ah. very talented guy. Very, very. There we great. go. There we go. So, and uh, that is uh, fantastic. Uh, okay. So uh, tune, tune a- in next week for more obscurity. <laughs> it has been a pleasure and. Uh, and a joy and a privilege, and uh, we will uh, we will speak anon. Uh, Mr. Pedoritz, uh, keep hope alive, as Jonah would say. Uh, and uh, Schadenfreude away. Mr. Schadenfreude Hall. away. Thank you all. I dreamed I was the president of these United States. I dreamed I replaced ignorance to I dream the perfect union and a perfect law on the Most of all, I dreamed I forgot the day John Kennedy died. I dreamed that I could do the job that others had done. 
said on TV And then a guy in a Porsche with his radio hit his horn and told us the news He says the president's dead he was shot twice in the head in Dallas and they don't know by whom I dreamed I was the president of these United States and 